So Philippians 2, verse 25. Let's pray together, and in we go to continue in our study of the book of Philippians. God, thank you. Thank you that we get to come together in your name. Thank you that we've been able to be so transformed by Jesus that we can appreciate the travails of Paul and the Philippian church. Likewise, to have just looked at Timothy and tonight to look at Epaphroditus, to be inspired by these people that you've put before us and to know that they're not here in vain, but that they're here really to disrupt our lives, to open our eyes, to look at biblical examples of those that decide to really set their eyes on Christ, to see Christ through this beautiful hymn earlier in this chapter, to marvel at him, and then to see him reflected in Paul, in Timothy, and now in Epaphroditus. Help us as we likewise strive to be more like Jesus, to be everyday people imitating Jesus that we would be inspired by their examples and truly strive to take our walk with you, Lord, to a greater level. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the title of tonight's lesson is Epic Epaphroditus. Why is that? Because, uh, as you can see, some of our, our shirts that the people are wearing, this blue shirt uh, right up here, uh, that, you know, our, our little theme for the year, in case you've forgotten, is Epic which is really just an acronym for everyday people imitating Christ. And that's the beauty of the books that we've been reading in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. It also helps you remember the books that we're reading. Epic, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. The I is maybe like an interspersed letter in one of those. Uh, like the I in Colossians, uh, you know. But, but now we really do see yet another example, not just through Paul's imitation of Christ, but now we see it through Timothy on Sunday, and then tonight with Epaphroditus, this fantastic imitation of Jesus. Jesus, who was so exalted just moments earlier in Paul's writing as one who had equality with God and did not hold on to it. And this is the great hymn that was just back in uh, verse 6. And instead, Christ emptied himself, the kenosis of Christ, emptied himself to become a slave, took on human appearance, and humbled himself to obedience of death on a cross. The ultimate shame and a shame and honor society, and what looks like the most devastating of all shames has been laid out here, and then the pivot point, and then the, the great rebound of that humbling of himself, and God exalts him. Exalts him to the highest place, a name above every name, at every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess throughout all the lands that Jesus is Lord. Thumbing their nose at Caesar in a Roman colony of all Roman colonies that Jesus is Lord. And now who makes his way out of that Roman colony to go to perhaps Rome, the, the other ultimate Roman colony, obviously. It's, it's actually not a colony, but Rome itself. And who is it but Epaphroditus? And a big reason why this letter is written is Paul is writing in a dance of grace, a reciprocal grace. They've all received so much from Christ. Christ, though being rich, made himself poor, impoverished himself for the Macedonian churches, which is what the Philippian church is. 2 Corinthians 8 tells us the story of what Jesus did for these Macedonian churches. That though he had everything, status and riches, he emptied himself and humbled himself to poverty, impoverished why? 
to make these Philippians and Paul rich. Not in the material sense. God forbid in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, which can be nowhere found in, in these pages, but rather made them rich in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Made them rich in the relationship that they had with Jesus Christ. And together, as they marveled and also sang songs of thanksgiving one to another for what Jesus had done in their lives, Paul began to encourage the Philippians, and the Philippians in turn began to encourage him. He planted the church. He brought them all to faith. They in turn supported him no matter where he went. They, though impoverished themselves, imitated Jesus in their poverty and gave of themselves completely to be able to see saints in all other places encouraged and supported, most especially Paul. And just now, what they have done is they have sent a very generous gift. Even though they have nothing, they managed to put together a generous gift and send it to Paul, who is languishing in a very difficult prison sentence where he himself has hinted more than a few times already that this prison sentence will probably mean that you won't have me around anymore. So prepare yourselves. And thus, the Philippians support him because there is no sort of present-day jail system. You've got to go provide every meal to anybody that you love that's in prison. And so the Philippians, though far away, they are up for the task and continue to do so and send a very special gift through Epaphroditus. This whole letter to the Philippians is based on this interaction and this transaction. And Paul is sending them a thank you note, which is what this letter is, thanks to what Epaphroditus has done. But look at what it takes, what Epaphroditus has done. And now we read in verse 25. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. So obviously Epaphroditus has already been there, been supporting Paul in some way or another. To send back to you Epaphroditus. And now Paul begins to commend Epaphroditus with five very important titles. And they are my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. He's also your messenger and he's also your minister. And in the original language, you have those five. Brother, worker, soldier, uh, messenger, and minister. And we'll, we'll look at those in just a moment. And that will be what we focus on tonight. And then after having commended him to them, he then says, for he longs for all of you. And he's separated from them. And he is in distress, not because he's homesick, but because he, because he heard that you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Take a brief pause here, because many will look at this letter and think that maybe there's what might be called, if you're familiar with the phrase, a Pollyanna element to Paul's constant rejoicing. Pollyanna is a fictional character even though she has horrible things going on in her life, she just puts on blinders and doesn't recognize them to continually sing a happy song. But that kind of rejoicing is not a rejoicing built out of faith or hope or consideration. It's a rejoicing built on self-imposed blinders where you are just doing an ostrich head in the sand rather than dealing with life so you can continue to skip along to your happy tune. That is not the kind of joy that Paul is advocating here. 
As a matter of fact, he's even letting us know that in addition to these chains that have him in prison, and in addition to all of the, the, the difficulties that he has endured, the other thing that is, is, is all, all before him is that he has sorrows, whatever they may be. And those sorrows, the way he says it, are about to be piled up upon one another. If Epaphroditus, who risked his life for him, would have died in the process of trying to do that service to him in the name of Christ. And if that had happened, Paul says, not only would I have sorrow, but then I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. And even in the midst of that, he's able to work through whatever it is that has so really gripped him with concern and sorrow and still is able to see through it all, make sense of it all, process it all, and realize that despite all circumstances that are crushing in on him, there's something that is so much greater and shining brighter than all of that, and that is the hope that is in him thanks to Jesus. And the hope that is in Philippi thanks to Jesus. Even though in Philippi, famine, poverty, deep poverty, and deep persecution. I mean, really rough conditions there. And yet here he is calling them likewise, despite all that they're going through, to continue to keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus, that, that, that great man of the hymn that he just laid out that I just read to you. And to keep your eyes on Christ. And by the way, to look at someone who also was beleaguered by every sorrow. A man familiar with sorrows and every type of pain. Jesus, and yet Jesus rose again and again. And the worst of all those sorrows, what was that? The cross. The cross, everything was brought together on Jesus at that moment. Not only was he rejected by all of his closest friends, not only was he humiliated by all of those who purport to be respected leaders, not only was he shamed, spit on, beaten, made into a toy piece for a game by soldiers, but then he was stripped, naked, humiliated, hung on a cross, and it says that it was for joy. For joy set before him that he endured the cross. He scorned the shame for the joy set before him. And what was that joy set before him? Because he knew that he was providing the way above everything else for the Philippians. He knew he was providing that for Paul, for Timothy, for Epaphroditus. No matter what would come and knock you off balance in your life in circumstances... What he was doing was providing something so much more valuable that we could always find real source of hope and joy. And, and so even for us here. And, and, and as we read this letter, it could sometimes be a very taxing letter to read to say, well, yeah, it's easy for you to be able to have joy. But, you know, I mean, what about my situations? You know, it reminds me, of course, of one of the more famous hymns in Caddyshack. <laughs> When Judge Schmales was christening his boat, the Flying Wasp, and as he goes to, to christen it, he says, it's easy to grin when your ship has come in and you've got the stock market beat. But the man who's worthwhile is the man who can smile when his pants are too tight in the seat. <laughs> so I think you can see the parallel, really, to, to what it is that we're, we're really experiencing here with Paul. That to be able to rise above all of those things. I'm sorry if Caddyshack has application. I, it's, just, it's just beyond me at times. 
And yes, that is silliness. But please recognize Paul is a man of sorrows. Jesus is a man of sorrows. Epaphroditus is a man that risked death, was, was very near death, all for the joy of being able to commune and work alongside of Christ and in his purposes. The, the, the very little experience of being able to align yourself with the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is such a goosebump inducing experience that I'm in alignment with Jesus that it is able to help you to rise above no matter what it is. I love even the sisters who came up here and even said, hey, no matter how tough times are, the fact that even in that tough time, you can then be someone who can relate and be a light to someone else. Suddenly that's a thrill that you never would, would want to trade in that despite all that I've gone through, this thrill allows me to have an eternal disruption in someone else's life. Well, that's gold, and that's also a beautiful perspective. But it's the perspective that Paul really wants to instill in us through this book. Let me keep moving uh, on through this. Uh, indeed, he was ill, almost died, but God had mercy on him, not also, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety." That word, less anxiety, all of these words for sorrow are the Greek word lupe. And, and at this point, he said that I would have lupe upon lupe, and that I send him so that I may have less lupe. So he's, he's using the word again and again throughout this passage. We don't necessarily get it from, from the text that we have in front of us. But he says, I, I want you to be able to be with him because, you know, I do have anxiety. I do have sorrow and grief and lupe in my life. So make no mistake that even though he didn't get sorrow upon sorrow with Epaphroditus' death, even with Epaphroditus' recovery, Paul still is a man that is wrestling through anxiety and sorrows and yet writes these words to us all because of Jesus looming so large in his life. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. That's an important word here because the fear might be that he went home in shame because he was meant to go and be at Paul's side and serve by his side and be that support system that someone would need in, in a prison. And yet here he is coming home. I was like, well, wh why were you not successful? Might have been some of the words that had greeted Epaphroditus upon his return to Philippi. Paul wanting so much to make sure that nobody misperceives what went on with him helps them to know, no, no, he laid it all out. He left it all on the field, even to the point of death. But he needs to get back right now. He needs to get back and get back to where he needs to be. And when he gets back, that's the kind of man that does not deserve shame. That's the kind of man that deserves your respect. That's the man that you honor. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. And I don't think that's a slam on Paul's part saying, well, you couldn't do it. It's just logistically a very far distance. And they picked a great ambassador to be able to go and do it. And that was Epaphroditus. Now, this, this um, phrase here, he risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me has lent many people with a kind of a, a deep, um, let's say, immersion in Greek language over the years, and especially earlier commentators, 
to the idea that Epaphroditus' name is a very interesting name because his name means he's the most favorite one of the goddess of luck or fortune, where this idea of risking would have been a word that you used when you were kind of all in if you were playing Texas Hold'em, which, of course, they didn't do then, but whatever it is that they did then, when, when you kind of went all in and you risked everything and put it all on the line, it was because you thought you were being favored by Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of fortune. His name, Epaphrodite, or Epaphroditus, uh, means that the one who is favored by her. And so some have, have thought that maybe he, he was one that was willing to kind of be, be kind of this kind of like patron saint of, you know what, you, you put it all there and, and watch, you know, things will get lucky. Take the risk, things will get lucky. Again, that's, a, that's an early idea, but it is one that's kind of a, a popular idea, but doesn't really have any kind of, you know, great, great basis in the text itself, other than just the word risk is being used here. Uh, but I, I only bring it up because probably you'll read it at some point if you read any kind of depth of literature on the book of Philippians. But nonetheless, let's go ahead and take a look at what he really is called and how he really is considered. And I'll take each of these in turn. Uh, first of all, he is, back to, to verse 25, he is my brother. The first three words, actually all of the words here are steeped in links to other people. And of course we throw around brother rather casually. And we will use it even if we're not brothers in Christ, you know, to people that are friends. But Paul does not use this word lightly. And for Paul to be able to say this to Epaphroditus, that this is my brother. Paul is piling up honor language for Epaphroditus here. And the, the way that it's an honor list makes the word brother important because it has pride of place. It's in, in the uh, first position of priority position. And thus it's not lightly used. Rather that it's used in this pride of place as something rather special. That he's so dear to Paul that he really is as is a brother one to another. And, and he was that for Paul as well. Some of you do have brothers and sisters and you know how deep and special that bond is. And you know how you would bend over backwards, go over land and sea for a brother. I know for my own brother, I have one full brother and... You know, we grew up together. We were the only, the only two and we're only a year apart and we got into trouble together, did terrible things together, did fun things together. But, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted more than anything on earth was for my brother to know Jesus. I mean, once I knew Jesus, that's all that mattered to me. And, and I wanted that for my brother. And so I lived in Dallas at the time. I would fly up to Memphis as often as I could. That's where he lived. Did all that I could there. Ultimately, in the midst of this, it was only a couple months later, I moved to the Baltimore area, continued to try to find ways to get out to him and, and get in there and sit down and study the Bible. I mean, this is my brother. My, my, my brother has got to know Jesus. They're like, there's nothing more important on earth at this point than Jesus. You know, yeah, New Jersey's important. Lithuania is important. But Jesus, you know? I mean, yeah, these, but Jesus, he, he actually even, you know, transcends Lithuania and New Jersey, even together. Jesus, right? Well, but one night, um, I got convicted by a, a devotional lesson that I heard on a Friday night. And, and it was about, you know, if, if you really do have a heart for people and, you know, what it is that you would do. And, and I thought, well, my brother, I mean, he was always, always kind of, you know, there in, in every one of these lessons. Uh, and, 
And I remember, for whatever reason, God put it on my heart to go pray for my brother. And I prayed that, that God would finally have that breakthrough to open his eyes, help him surrender over, and really uh, know Jesus. And so I, I went to a place called Federal Hill in Baltimore, and it overlooks the city. And I got there almost 11 at night, and I decided that whatever time the sun would come up, I would pray just for one thing until the sun came up. And that was for my brother to surrender self, deny himself, and, and give his life to Christ. And so I did. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is that I thought, oh, this is going to be like crazy boring or tough. But here's the wacky part of this. As the sun was coming up, I remember thinking to myself, oh, man, I still have so much more I want to pray about for him. It's really interesting when you, when you really do kind of get in alignment with God's will and you recognize the depth and beauty of that and how much you love somebody, how much there really is to pray. And, and I remember thinking, oh, I, I, I'll just do a couple more laps because I really do. I, I mean, I have so much more to be able to say. So then I, I go home, by the way, and, and fall asleep. And a couple hours later, around 1030, the phone rings. And again, I've tried everything with my brother. But it has gone nowhere. I mean, he's polite. He sits and reads the Bible with me. But it never went anywhere. And he'd go back to all of the craziness that was really his life. And it was over the top, like craziness. Uh, including, you know, he, after that, he, he was arrested in Costa Rica. He was arrested in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, he was arrested in Belize. And, but then, you know, he, he's back home. And we, we, we get together again. And, um, and, and 1030, the phone rings. And it's, and it's Michael. It's my brother. And he says... Hey, I just thought I'd call you because I figured you'd be happier about this than anybody else. But I, I actually got together with the minister with the Memphis Church of Christ out here. We, we had coffee this morning and I don't know what it was, but it's like suddenly I have new eyes and I can see the scriptures and I'm ready to get after this stuff. I'm like, what? And, and I was really happy and then I was really scared because I'm like, I'm like God, if that's what it takes to help people to know you, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. <laughs> Like, whoa! But, but my goodness, when, when my brother finally, finally, you know, repented, was baptized into Christ, I mean, it's just the sweetest day I could ever imagine. So terrific and wonderful. Uh, and, and, you know, and even, even now, that, like that relationship. But that's, that's the depth of, I think, what we understand in our, our flesh brothers. But I think that's also something that I've got to make sure that I'm really using as the standard bearer of what it means to be a brother one with another here. Uh, this is not casual the way that Paul says it. And it should not be casual when we say that brother, sister, one to another here as well. Uh, that we would make that flight. We would have that prayer. We would go over you know, whatever obstacle that might be in our way, all for the sake of our brother. Um, and moving on, he then talks about worker. You see I have that little kind of uh, connective button there. It's the icon that means share. Because he doesn't just use the word worker. These words have a prefix before them. The, the Greek prefix is, is uh, sigma upsilon nu, where we get words like synthesis or synergy, and it's the idea of together, right? So he doesn't just use worker, but he's like my co-worker, right? My, my shoulder-to-shoulder worker. He is my shoulder-to-shoulder worker in the Lord. And you know what? Work is not a dirty word in Jesus. Jesus did work, and he redeemed us to be his workmanship. Paul got that. Because of the grace of God, he says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 10, his grace to me was not without effect. Rather than I worked harder than all the rest, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Paul recognized in Romans 5 that, my goodness, Jesus died for me at the time when it was least 
ever imaginable that anybody would ever do. He did that for me. What wouldn't I do for him? I'm going to work. And it is not a burden. It is a joy every step of the way. And you know who else gets that? Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus gets that as well. He uprooted himself out of Philippi. He was ill along the way. He almost died. He stayed here by my side. I have to send him back because he's not just going back. I have to send him back because he wants to stay at his post and do the great work in the Lord. Think about what work you have done. Think about what priorities you've made for the work that you do, secularly mundane work that we have to do. Terrific work. It's, it's work is working for the Lord. But also now think, have I made my work a greater priority? Am I quicker to go ahead and justify priority for work, for, for, for my, my work as a worker, than I would as a worker for the Lord? And, I, and Epaphroditus, I don't think it would be any competition for him. Paul and his tent making versus his, his work for the Lord. Again, no competition for him whatsoever. But, but for us, are we that far into knowing Christ and aligning ourselves with Christ that it would be just as easily for us to recognize, wait, this is something for the Lord. All priorities don't even come into play here because of that. He then also calls him, and I think this is even more reason why uh, uh, Hampton Roads should really love this book of Philippi, of, of the Philippians, my fellow soldier, not just soldier, but this S.Y.N., you know, this soon, uh, soon soldier, that we are shoulder to shoulder soldiers. We are in that, that, that lineup. We're in that phalanx where, you know what, I got his shoulder with this, the sword and the shield, and, and he's got mine, and together, that, that's how soldiers fought. There was no kind of lone soldier, you know, out there on the battlefield, kind of whipping it around with the shield. That shield of faith was the size of your front door. It wasn't very mobile for you uh, to, to go into one, some sort of a individual hand-to-hand -hand com combat. That's not the way they fought. They were together. And by the way, they were together. And they, when they got into the phalanx, they knew that if the guy goes down next to them, there's a good chance that they are as well. Uh, and that if he's going to go down, then it looks like we're all willing to give our lives, whatever this cause is, for which we are, are soldiers. Uh, Christ, of course, laid down his life for Paul, for Epaphroditus. And they both are in a very real place. Paul about to do it in prison and Epaphroditus almost having done it to come serve him in prison. But they are in lockstep battle for Jesus together. And they realize that this is a battle that needs to be done with co-soldiers, with a, a shoulder to shoulder, one spirit, one purpose, one battle, one, one uh, spirit amongst ourselves. Who is your co-soldier? And, and if you've been in the military, what have you done in the call of duty for the military that you may not actually do for Christ? Take a little bit of stock in that and ask yourself, why is that? Is it a piece of paper that would somehow kind of rearrange any of this? Why is it that my convictions are not so clear based on the person and the beauty and the ransom of Jesus Christ for my life? That would make all of this stuff so much more clear. And everybody else here has, has been benefited in the same way. Why am I not linking up with them and really getting after this to the point that, hey, even if it means laying down our lives, that's fine. It's what Jesus did. And we decided that we are going to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, Jesus says, will save it. Uh, messenger. Interesting, it's the word apostle, uh, apostolos. 
is, is the word there. Of course, it's not, you know, kind of uh, big A apostolos, but it is a messenger. It is, it is one that, that comes for the sake of someone else, but it is one who comes with good news. It is what Paul was. It is what Epaphroditus was. It is what gives him honor. And it also is what gives us honor. The reason that we shine like stars is not because we're all that. We shine like stars because we hold forth. We just read a few verses earlier. We hold forth something brilliant. We hold forth Jesus. We have the word of Christ. We get to hold that forth. We are those same messengers. And then finally, it's the word uh, minister, but it's, uh, it's where we get the word liturgy. It's a liturgus. And it's also the word that is used for a public official who is so uh, all in, I guess you use that, that risky phrase again, but, but, but is so committed to his community that the building projects under his purview in a community as, as a kind of a minute, think of like British minister, right? Not, not church minister. So British minister. So someone who is a minister of finance, someone who is a minister of a, a different agency. But in the Roman world, you would have ministers that would oversee public works. And, and one that is described by this title is one that would actually fund those works out of his own resources. And it is one that is so committed to being able to build for the sake of this greater cause and seeing the benefit of it to the community that he does so even to his own sacrifice. And, and that is this idea. It's the word that's also used in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where, where it talks about this is your, your uh, righteous, uh, this is your reasonable sacrifice, your reasonable worship. They're, they're trying to make sense of a very complicated word here of liturgus. And, and it is what is being Honored upon Epaphroditus here. And it is this idea that you, you are so enthralled and also feel such a sense of responsibility for the ministry of Christ that you do take ownership of it, whatever resources that you have to make sure that this ministry of Christ is going to flourish and to be successful. Christ gave his all. We in turn give our all as well. And so we see in Epaphroditus this kind of bringing of all of this together, but bringing it in all together in such a degree that he does it to the point of death. I mean, that's the remarkable side of all of this. It's not just that he's a brother, not just that he's a co-worker, not just that he's your side-by-side -side soldier, messenger, and minister, but he does it to the point of death. He is an everyday person, but he's imitating Christ. He's a soldier imitating Christ. He's a worker imitating Christ. He's a brother imitating Christ. That's the message. That's the service. That's the ministry that, that needs to be ours as well. Uh, this is really, I think, the perfect call for us to look at Epaphroditus and to recognize this is every one of us. This is, every, this is who Jesus wants every one of us to be. And Paul realizes that, and that's why he gives this special commendation in this letter to make sure that this does not go unnoticed. But this is what it looks like when an everyday person imitates Christ. Let's do the same. Here's our final charge. What have you done for family, as a worker, or even as a soldier that you have not yet offered to do for Jesus? And what if that was brought to bear for Jesus? What would the impact be? So we'll go ahead and break to our groups. Thanks.